I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I'm not sure where the songwriter is in his spiritual journey, but that's such a happy sounding song with such angry lyrics. And yet it's honest. I mean, if we're honest, sometimes we struggle to trust God. Sometimes we blame God for our own character deficiencies. And that's what this series is really about. We're, we're looking at who God really is, and not through the prism of who we are, but who he's revealed himself to be. And the scriptures acknowledge that we do have an internal struggle, a, a civil war. One of the godliest men who started more churches than anyone else, named Paul, described his own battle like this in Romans 7. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Have you ever been there? We're looking at who God really is, and we are wrestling through God in the midst of our temptations and our struggles. Does God cause them? Or does he sit there with a gavel, smirking, ready to judge us? Well, these are the kind of questions that in this series we hope to move past these misconceptions. We're doing a mental and spiritual, emotional assessment of how we view God. Not just what we say about God, but how our actions act actually reflect what we believe about God. And my hope is that you'll discover who God really is. Get a new God is not about creating your own version of God that you like. It's about actually taking your view of God, getting rid of it, and seeing who God himself has revealed himself to be. A.W. Tozer, uh, an author who followed Jesus, once wrote this. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. See, when we create our own version of God, it, it actually affects how we treat other people. But when we begin to see who God really is, it changes how we not only relate to him, but how we relate to others. And so we saw last week that God is a covenantal God. He, he makes a covenant with us. 4,000 years ago, he made a covenant with Abram, also known as Abraham. It's a covenant that continues to this day. It's an unending covenant for all those who have faith. We are adopted, chosen into his family. Listen to this in Romans 4. Because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous, right with God, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. See, this unconditional, everlasting covenant is made possible because before Jesus Abram and others trusted in the Messiah to come. They trusted in the God who would send a rescuer. And we trust in the Messiah who has come and will come again. Well, 500 years after Abraham, God makes another covenant. But this is a conditional covenant, a covenant he made with Moses. This is the law. We see it in the Ten Commandments. And, and these commandments are given to, to mark the boundaries on the ski slopes of life. These boundary markers are there to protect us. I'm curious, any of you into the Olympics? Not very good Americans in this room. <laughs> any of you into the Olympics? Yeah. All right, there we go. Now, I don't know if you've been watching much, 
I saw this great tweet uh, that I think summarized maybe how you feel. I didn't know who most of these people were, but this, this woman tweeted, the Olympics prove that I am more invested in the success of people I don't know than my own success. We watch and we're just captivated and, and we see excellence. I also saw someone else suggest we need to have just normal Joes try every one of these events so we can see like how great these people really are. The problem with that is a lot of normal Joes would die, I think. <laughs> but as you're watching this, you can even see some of the events. There's like, there's these boundaries. Even coming down, they're coming down like 60 miles per hour, skiing down these slopes. And if you go outside of these blue lines, you go outside of these boundaries, you get hurt. My wife reminded me last night, I guess I had blocked it out of my memory. One time we were skiing, snow skiing, and, and we were in these mountains and we somehow got lost. We lost the boundary markers. We did, couldn't see the right signs. And if you've ever gone snow skiing, you know there's like green slopes and there's blue slopes. There's black diamond slopes. Somehow, I still don't know to this day how we ended up on a double black diamond. <laughs> and we were at the top. And I thought, well, maybe if we just kind of slide down sideways. Well, my wife just took off her skis and just slid down the mountain. <laughs> took way longer than I think it was supposed to. But see, these boundaries, the, the law is actually designed to protect us, to keep us in places where we're safe. See, this conditional covenant that God made with Moses and the people of Israel says basically this, if you obey my commands, things will go well. But if you don't obey, you'll be outside of my protection and there will be consequences. And so we see this in how the people of Israel related to God. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and he reads these commands to the people and they agree with them. They are good with these commands. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain and stays for 40 days. And during those 40 days, as we saw last week, the people panic. They begin to get nervous. They begin to get anxious. And so they end up going back to what all the other tribes believed about God. That he was angry, that he would come for them. So they actually built a golden calf. Now you and I might think that sounds ridiculous. You don't have a golden calf. You don't worship a golden calf. How could that help? But see, we have other false idols in our life that when we get anxious and when we're afraid, we go to those things. If God starts to feel distance or goes 40 days without clarity from God, we go back to drinking, smoking out, pornography. You name whatever your false idol becomes, where you go for comfort rather than to the one who created you, the one who loves you. And so we see that in that moment, as Moses sees they've created this golden calf. I mean, think about it. These people had gone through such remarkable experience. They'd seen God do the miraculous to free them from oppression and slavery. And now they're worshiping a golden calf. And Moses is beside himself. As he comes down the mountain, he throws down the tablets with the Ten Commandments. And he warns them. He says, God should wipe you out. Justice, requiring payment. But when he goes back on the mountain, God reveals a character that is very different than what we often see him to be. Listen to these words in Exodus 34. And then the Lord told Moses, 
chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I will write on them the same words that were on the tablets you smashed. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and called out his own name, Yahweh, I am. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, listen to the long version of God's name, I am, or Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I will forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. Now I see God revealing his longer version of his name. This is repeated seven times throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, describing God's character. And our hope in the series is that you'll begin to connect the dots, that the God revealed in the Old Testament is the same God revealed in the New Testament. We can see him more clearly because he's walked among us and his name is Jesus. And both God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament revealed themselves, describing themselves as I am, the one who was and is and is to come. Now, I have to, I have to acknowledge that when I read the long version of God's name, which, by the way, that's a long name, but when you hear that that I am, I am the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. You probably just got stuck on, but I do not excuse the guilty. We forget all these beautiful descriptions of God's character, and we just hang on to the last one. And in part, it could be that you were raised, taught that God is angry, vindictive, that Jesus is coming back and he's ticked, right? But when you see how God describes himself, even the God of the Hebrew scriptures, and fully revealed as Jesus in the New Testament, you begin to see a very different picture. See, some of us are looking at God through the wrong filter. We're looking at God through the mistakes of others or our own mistakes or what others have told us. We need to open our heart and mind, not be so closed-minded on who God is, not come to closure too quickly on who he is and what he wants to do in us and through us. But even this last phrase is actually a good thing, that he does not excuse the guilty. See, in other words, God will make all things right one day. There will be justice. And we need that. We want that. But there's a difference between justice and retaliation. There's a difference between taking action and retribution. And throughout history, we see people who have faced great injustices, who actually offer compassion, even as there are still are consequences for the perpetrators of the injustice. Think about the the families of the Charleston Nine, folks who gathered together in their church in South Carolina only to be shot down during a prayer meeting. These families offered forgiveness to the gunman, even as he deserved punishment in prison. Or think of Nelson Mandela in South Africa. After being in prison and finally becoming president, he introduced something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Or in Rwanda, after their horrible civil war, the president introduced justice and reconciliation process. And we hear that and we think we like the justice part, but we're not sure about the reconciliation. When people have hurt us, we want retribution. We want vengeance. But what God shows us is there's actually something beyond that. 
You can see it in history as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. responded to racism and segregation and injustice in such a different way rather than advocating for violence. And what better time than now as our nation is celebrating Black History Month than to acknowledge our gratitude to the people of color who fought the evils of injustice and racism with the weapons of compassion and forgiveness and grace. And in doing so, have modeled the way of Jesus. Now, I want to encourage you to read about these important people in history, but I know some of you don't read. And so for you, I just encourage you, go see the Black Panther. That'll catch you up. But we are called to compassion that includes justice and action, not to revenge, which includes retaliation and retribution. See, God's way brings life and hope, but the world's way brings more violence and more injustice. But what I want us to spend our time on today is looking at the first phrase in this longer, extended version of God's name, that God is compassion and mercy. Is that how you view God? Do you see him as compassionate and merciful? Do you see him as revealed through the scriptures, through the person of Jesus? Open your heart and open your mind to the possibility you're seeing him all wrong. The reason that God gives forgiveness, and we see this over and over, giving the Israelites a second and a third chance, is because that's who he is. He is compassion and mercy. This word compassionate is from the Hebrew word raham, which is the same root word as the word for womb. It describes the tender love of a mother for the child who came from her womb. The Bible is describing God with that same compassionate, nurturing love for you and for me. And this word gracious, or also translated as merciful, comes from the Hebrew word kanan, which is where our, word, our names like Hannah and John and Sean come from. And the root means to bend, to be inclined to help someone. It's an action from a superior to an inferior who has no real claim for grace, gracious treatment. And this word gracious or merciful is used more of God than anyone else in the scriptures. God is gracious to us. He is for us. He bends down to help us, even though we don't deserve it. And that's why we see in in spite of the rebellion in the scriptures, even in this story with Moses and the Israelites, in spite of all the miracles, they go right back to that golden calf. But we do the same thing. And we judge others who do the same thing. But what can help us gain a proper understanding of God is actually community. It's in the context of community that others who may have walked with God a little bit longer than us can actually help us reframe our view of God. I think of Pat, who's in my life group. When he first moved to Austin, he was in a bad place. He had lost his marriage and his career, and he was struggling even just to get up out of bed to go to work. And he mustered up the courage to come to Gateway, knowing he needed new friends. And after a while of just sitting there all by himself, Sunday after Sunday, not quite every Sunday, he ended up jumping into a life group. But even then, he didn't come every week. And some weeks he would even tell us, I didn't make it last week because I was so down. And he would be frustrated with himself, saying, I know I need to be here. I always feel better when I make it. But I was so down, I couldn't even come. And so we promised to pray for him and with him. And eventually, 
as we checked on him, he started to check in on us. He started to pray for us. Started seeing him more week after week, not just in Sunday mornings, but in life group. And eventually he jumped in and started serving with guest services. He was surrounded with a second family. Well, this last week when we were together as a life group, he was sharing about this really tragic situation his brother is facing, leukemia. And he was asking us to pray for him because Pat was actually going to Houston for the next 10 days in order to donate stem cells to save his brother's life. What was remarkable is he found out he was a match during one of our life groups in November. And so rather than being overwhelmed with this current situation, with joy, he felt as if God was giving him the opportunity to rescue his brother. What a different perspective. Community helped him see God so differently, that God is with us in the midst of the painful times. He has not abandoned us. See, our Sunday serve teams and our life groups can become a loving community for you, a second family for you. That's why we point you towards Starting Gate. That's why we talk about the power of life groups. And maybe it's today, jumping in to community, just sticking around to see Tamara afterwards. Let her give you the tour. Or maybe it's a life group. Just text the word life group. We'll put it up on the screen. There's a number, 48421. And it's got to be one word. Don't let that phone autocorrect because it won't work. Life group, one word. Take control of your phone, right? And, uh, but it'll send you a link and it'll show you a list of different groups and jump in and try a group. And if it doesn't work, try another. But don't give up on finding community. See, the scriptures reveal God as compassionate. He cares for people. He created you for a relationship with him. The question is, do you realize this? Do you emotionally live as knowing he loves you? Because if we did, it would do two things. It would suddenly adjust how we live. We wouldn't want to turn away from his ways because we know that it would not only hurt us, but it would also hurt our relationship with him. It would be putting distance between ourselves and him. See, all throughout the Old Testament, for thousands of years, the prophets described God as compassionate and merciful. Listen to this in Isaiah 63. God said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me, and so he became their savior. And all their distressed, he too was distressed. And the messenger of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. 700 years before Jesus walked among us, you can see in this passage the triune God. One God revealed in three persons. You see the father, the parent, who wants children to be true to him. You see the savior, the one who's come to rescue us, the messenger of the Father. Actually, what's fascinating is the word in Hebrew, Yeshua, means salvation, and translated into English means Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the, the name of Jesus is there in the word salvation. And then we see the Holy Spirit who's grieved when we rebel against God. But the scriptures reveal that God has compassion because he has suffered along with us. He is the suffering servant, the creator of the universe, come to be with us. 
700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah writes of the Messiah, the rescuer, the savior. Listen to this in Isaiah 53. To whom the Lord has revealed his powerful arm, that is the image of the Messiah. My servant grew up in the Lord's, Yahweh's presence. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, the Messiah, the sins of us all. Even though we've turned our back on him, he pursues us. He rescues us. He takes on himself our terrible choices. God doesn't want you to know about him. He wants you to know him as a friend, as a father. Jesus demonstrated that he is compassion and mercy. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus looked out over a crowd in Matthew 9, that he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Looking at the crowd, he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. How do you see a crowd? I don't see them quite like Jesus did. It's hard to have compassion on the crowd. I feel more annoyed. They're getting in my way. They're slowing things down. But see, Jesus sees each person for who we are, needing a, a Messiah, needing a rescuer, needing a hero. And when he transforms our hearts, he sends us back out to to be those messengers of faith and love and hope. See, Jesus revealed God is compassionate and merciful. There's another time in the ministry of Jesus when the religious leaders brought to Jesus a woman they had caught in the act of adultery. It's a terrible story. How did they even find this woman? Why didn't they bring the guy that was involved? And they were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to bring retribution to this woman. They wanted to see if if Jesus took seriously the evil choices of humanity. And so they wanted Jesus, as the law described, to be part of stoning this woman to death. And listen to what Jesus says to these self-righteous religious leaders. All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dirt. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. I love this story. I wonder if Jesus was writing the sins of all the people around him in the dirt. And there's something interesting about the oldest leaving first. See, when you're younger, you you think you've got it all together. You, You... Act as if you don't need God's help, that you are above needing God's mercy. But the older you get, the more you start to realize, yeah, I don't have it all together. And if you don't realize it on your own, other people will remind you. (laughs) And so the older ones begin to drop their stones knowing that they had their own struggles. They may not have been brought out into the circle, but they had their own issues. See, Jesus then looks into the eyes of this woman who was guilty and he asks her this question. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
She responded, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. See, this is the heart of God. He doesn't wink at wrongs. They have negative consequences. He wants to help us avoid the pain that choosing a road of destruction will lead us. That's why he actually offers her a promise. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, you don't have to live this way anymore. But notice the first words he says to her. Where are your accusers? And looking into her eyes, he says, I don't condemn you. Is that how you see God to be? He's not an accuser. He's not here to condemn, but to rescue, to show compassion and mercy and grace, to help us become the people who more naturally do the right thing because he's changing us from the inside out rather than hiding when we're struggling, turning to God for help. Listen to who Jesus is in Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So when we fail, when we make a terrible mistake, when we hurt ourselves and others, when we give in to temptation, we have two options. Either in that moment, turn to God for forgiveness and for help or hide from God in our shame. And here we see that God himself was tempted and yet did not give in and that he is with us and for us, that he is our defender, that we can actually turn to him for help. See, the way we overcome temptation and grow spiritually to be able to leave a life of sin is when we let God help us, acknowledging that we cannot help ourselves. Here's what we need to understand about God when we're tempted. I'll give you three things to help us. First, it's not wrong to be tempted. Hebrews 4.15, Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are. He was tempted but never gave in. And what the scriptures tell us is that the battle is in our mind. You will never do wrong with your body until you first go there in your mind. The battle of temptation is won or lost in our thoughts. John Burke described it this way. Our first thought is free. It's not a sin to be tempted. You have a crazy thought that pops into your head. It's what you do with that thought that will determine if you're going to go down the path of life or the path of destruction. See, that first thought is a reminder to take our thoughts captive. Because we have some crazy thoughts. At least I do. I don't know if you do. Actually, I do. No, you do. We all have thoughts that just come in our mind. And sometimes when those thoughts come, we are so discouraged that we even had that thought that we give in. We just assume we're never going to get better. But that temptation is not sin. It's what you do with the temptation that determines the path you're headed towards. That first thought is free. It's that second thought that leads to darkness. And if you go down that dark path, you go back to that lustful thought, that angry thought, that bitter thought, if you start to dwell there, you can still get out. That's where the second thought is. Admit wrongs right away. So if you 
fail to take that thought captive and stay in the right path and you go down the dark path, then just admit wrongs right away. If you've realized you've crossed the line, don't keep hiding and pretending that God doesn't know or it's justifiable. That's when we play God, which will only keep us stuck. But to turn to the merciful high priest, go straight to God, our defense attorney, our advocate, the one who died on our behalf, who's now defending us. And listen to this beautiful passage from 1 John. If we claim to have, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Just, the scriptures tell us, just admit it. Just be honest. Ask for forgiveness and he will forgive. And we just keep doing this. And if we can get closer and closer to that moment, we give in to that second thought to saying we're sorry, to asking for forgiveness, we will find healing. We will find the ability to take our thoughts captive and not even go down that direction. See, sin separates us from God. And all we have to do in order to connect with God, in order to have a relationship with God is to acknowledge, I need you to forgive me. I need you to be my leader, my guide. And the moment we step into that relationship with faith, then we are now part of an everlasting, unconditional covenant with God but we will still sin. And again, we, we have separated ourselves from God. We can't hear him quite as clearly. We have distanced ourselves from him, but we have not lost the relationship. We just need to simply come back and say, forgive me. See, God is right there. He's pursuing us. But we can't hear him when our back is turned. All we have to do is turn back to him, and he's always there waiting for us. Time after time after time final way to handle temptation is walk forward learning from God. If you confess you're clean, live knowing you are forgiven. Temptation always starts with a lie about God and his ways. If you're having thoughts that are condemning you, accusing you, that's not God. His thoughts are you, for you are gracious and compassionate and filled with mercy. So in this moment, I want you just to pause and I want you just in your own heart to acknowledge to God anything that you need to ask for him to remove, to forgive, that you might start afresh. Or maybe for the first time to acknowledge that you need forgiveness just in this moment. Heavenly Father, would you help us see you as who you really are? Compassionate, gracious, merciful. And that not only would it transform how we respond to you, but how we live in this broken world, that we experience healing and bring that healing to everyone around us. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.